campus. So glad to see all of you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. 1 John chapter 3 is where you need to go. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to take a break, short break from our study of Hebrews for the sake of Christmas today. We'll be back into the swing of things in Hebrews next week. It'll be a great way to start the new year. I hope that you will come back next Sunday. We do this every Sunday. We get together like this. We worship together like this. And we want you to be a part of it every Sunday. This morning, as we celebrate Christmas, our focus will be not just on the fact that Jesus was born, but we want to try to see why Jesus was born, why he came. What was the purpose of all of this? What did he accomplish, and why should we celebrate it? In order to do that, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 8. And as you turn there, and as you get settled there, I want to remind you of two things about 1 John in general. Number one, this letter was written by a man who was arguably Jesus' best friend. John and Jesus were pals. They spent a great deal of time together. It seems like everywhere Jesus went almost, John was there with him. Uh, In those moments where there are just a few of Jesus' disciples around, John was one of them. The author of this letter was one of them. Uh, He walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. He knew Jesus well. They were close friends, and that's important to remember. Secondly, it's important to remember that this letter was written to those who believe in Jesus so that they would know that they have eternal life. He says it this way in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So this letter was written to believers to encourage them and give them assurance. It's unlike his gospel, the gospel of John, same guy, same friend of Jesus wrote that, uh, but he wrote that book for a different reason. In fact, he states the reason for that book in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, where he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I want to see both of those things happen today in this room. I want you to hear the things about Jesus so that you may believe in his name and that believing you may have life in him. I want to see dead people raised to life. I want to see people receive the gift of salvation for the very first time in this room today. And we've been praying toward that end. But we also want to see God's people encouraged. We want to see them edified. We want to see them given assurance of salvation and confidence and every reason to celebrate. So I pray that some will come to faith for the very first time and that others will be encouraged in the faith for the hundredth time. So read the word of God with me. First John chapter 3 verses 4 to 8. This is what God's word says. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful on this morning especially for the appearance of Jesus. That he came to this earth, that he was born of a virgin, 
laid in a manger, worshipped by shepherds, adored by wise men. And we thank you that there was great purpose in his appearance. That he appeared to take away our sin. That he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And I pray on this Christmas morning, Father, that you will help us to see that clearly. That for some, it will be the moment that draws them to you in faith for salvation. That they would receive on this Christmas morning the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And for others, we pray that this Christmas morning will bring them encouragement, edification, building up. And it will bring them confidence and assurance of their salvation that they will know that they have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there are two fantastic verses in this text. And, and really, it's the reason why I believe God led us to this text for this morning. Uh, but I want to preach the whole text because those two verses are not without context. Those two verses don't just stand alone. They are written in this letter. They are written in this chapter of this letter. They are written in this paragraph of this letter. And so we need to understand them in their proper context. So look at verse 4. It says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Part of what John is doing in this letter is showing the total inconsistency and really the impossibility of being truly converted and still living the same way as before. One of my favorite preachers is named Paul Washer, and I've heard him tell a story before that illustrates the fact that you can't meet with Jesus and walk away the same. It just doesn't work like that. And he tells this story about, he says, uh, suppose I were to walk into this meeting this morning 20 minutes late. And I walk in and I say, guys, I'm, I'm really sorry that I'm late for Christmas worship especially. I'm really sorry I'm late, but on the way uh, to church this morning, I had a flat tire. And as I was changing the tire, uh, one of the lug nuts rolled out into the middle of the street. And as I went to pick up the lug nut, a log truck was coming down the highway and a log truck hit me. And that's the reason why I'm 10 minutes late today. If I were to tell you that story, what would you say? Not, not true, right? This, is, this is, can't be the case. If you got hit by a log truck, Chris, in the road picking up a lugna, if you got hit by a log truck on the way to church, you wouldn't make it to church. You didn't really get hit by a log truck. And yet we know people who say, I had an encounter with Jesus. I met Jesus, and I believe that he died for my sins and rose again. I believe he has removed this heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I believe he's given me a new nature. I believe that uh, the old things are gone and new things have come. I'm a new creature in Christ. And yet, there's no evidence of it in their lives. They don't bear any marks, and there's no change in their lives. And so John is writing this letter to say that it is inconsistent to say that you have had an encounter with Jesus and there be no real difference in your life. In fact, I think he goes even further than to say it's inconsistent. I think he says it's impossible. It's impossible. And so that's part of what he's talking about here in verse 4. So if you have had an encounter with Jesus, your life will be changed. And if our lives have not been changed, there is a strong likelihood, at least a strong likelihood, that we have not had a true encounter with Jesus. But read on, verse 5. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. This is the main reason why I want to preach this message today. And I want to dissect every little bit of verse 5. Notice first, he says, you know. You know. Again, this is written to believers. And for those of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation, this is something we know. 
We know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And we know that in him there is no sin. But that is not true for everyone. It's not true for everyone in this world. It's not even true for everyone in this room. There are people in this room who do not know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And that in him there is no sin. And so if you are one of those people who do not know today, listen up. I'm going to tell you today that Jesus came to take away sin. And that in him there is no sin. And this brings you hope if you trust in him. Notice he says, you know that he appeared. This word is really interesting, this word, he appeared. It means to make visible or to make clear. It comes from a root word that means to bring to light or cause to appear. Notice that John doesn't say that he was created. He doesn't talk about Jesus being created on Christmas Day. Rather, he says he simply came to light on Christmas Day. So this statement is not about Jesus' origin, it's about his revelation. It's kind of like what we did at our house this morning when we unwrapped gifts. Sort of. Those gifts had been under the tree for a long time. They had existed for a long time. But my kids didn't know what they were. They had guesses. They had uh, speculation. But they didn't really know until this morning when we unwrapped them and they were revealed. Right? They came to light. They appeared. They had been there a long time. But suddenly they have appeared. And that's exactly what happened at Christmas time. On that very first Christmas morning. It's not as if Jesus didn't exist before this scene. And then he started to exist at Christmas. No. He had always existed. Always existed. From eternity past. There is not a time when Jesus did not exist. And yet on Christmas day he appeared. He appeared. He was brought to light. He was revealed. He was manifested. So this word is a perfect word to describe what happened on Christmas. You know that he appeared. He appeared, and that's why we're here today, celebrating. But there's more. Look what it says. You know that he appeared in order. In order. That is a Greek word that we are coming to appreciate here at First Baptist Church. It's a Greek word, hina. Sometimes it's translated because or for the purpose of. It is a statement of divine purpose. So this word communicates the purpose of Jesus' appearance. And that's what we want to focus our attention on today. Not just that he appeared, but why he appeared. So the question is, why did he appear? Did he appear in order to give us an excuse to exchange gifts in the winter? Did he appear in order to be nice to people who came in contact with him? Did he appear to feed those who are hungry, to heal those who are sick? Did he appear to create a new religion 2,000 years ago? Are those the reasons why Jesus appeared, or is there something more? Oh, there's something much more. The text tells us that he appeared in order to take away sins. This is it. This is the Christmas message. This is the gospel message. This is the reason we celebrate and we have every reason to celebrate. I want you to rewind a little bit in John's life. What you know about the author of this letter, John, the friend of Jesus. He wasn't always the friend of Jesus, and he wasn't always the disciple of Jesus. In fact, when he first saw Jesus, he was the disciple of a man named John. Another man named John. We call him John the Baptist. So John, son of Zebedee, the author of this letter, was following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist saw Jesus, and he said something incredible. This is the whole account in John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1. It says, this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent, him to, uh, sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John the Baptist says, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? 
And he said, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you were not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Listen to this. The next day, the next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This he said, um, this he is on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remaining on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Verse 35 of John chapter 1 says, Again the next day John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. Two of his disciples were standing with him. John, son of Zebedee, only identifies one later on. The other one was him. He was the other one. The author of this letter was the other one standing there. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So this is the beginning of John's following after Jesus. He hears John the Baptist say, That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John, the son of Zebedee, the author of our letter, went to follow him. And he followed him for the rest of his life. He followed Jesus for the rest of Jesus' life, and he followed Jesus for the rest of his life. And he told everyone he could about who Jesus was. But notice what the text says. It says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how does Jesus take away our sins? This may be the heart of the message today. How does Jesus take away sins? Number one, he takes them. He takes our sin as his own. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For our sakes he made him to be sin. That is, the Father made the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Matt, in this text he read from Isaiah 53, told us that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. In other words, part of the way Jesus takes away our sin is he takes our sin on himself. He steps into accountability for our transgressions. He counts them to his own account even though he committed no sin. Number one, he takes our sin. Number two, he pays for our sin. He pays the price for our sin. We talked about a text last night that teaches us that the wages of sin is what? Death. And what did Jesus do on the cross? He died. So not only did he take our sin upon himself, he paid for our sin with his own death. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So he took our sins, he paid for our sins, and he took our sins away. 
He took our sins away when he rose in victory over sin and death and hell. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the end of that chapter. It says... It says in verse 54, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you catch this? Jesus takes our sins. He pays for our sins with his death. And he takes away our sins through his resurrection, his victory over sin and death and hell. How does he appear to take away our sins? He takes them, he pays for them, and he takes them away. And this is good news for us, right? The scripture also goes on and says, John adds this note, and in him there is no sin. He appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Remember, this is Jesus' best friend saying this. You couldn't spend three or four days with me before you say, he's got a sin problem. This preacher at First Baptist, he sins. I watched him get angry. I watched him be impatient. No telling what else you might watch if you spend some time with me, right? But John spent years with Jesus. And he is able to say, as his best friend, as his closest companion, he's able to say, in him, there is no sin. And that's why he can die for our sins. Because as John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. You don't take a lamb to sacrifice to the Lord who has blemishes and problems. You take the perfect, spotless Lamb. And Jesus is that perfect, spotless Lamb. In him, there is no sin. In him, there is no sin. But that's not the case with us. Look at verse 6. He says, no one who abides in him sins... No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. You may read this text and say, well, wait a minute. If if that's the way it works, if we're in him, we don't sin, then, then none of us are in him. Because we all sin. We all struggle with sin. And what I want you to see in this part of the text is that when we get a glimpse of Jesus, we see more clearly our sinfulness. This is the way it has always worked in the scriptures. Anytime someone has gotten a clear glimpse of God, their response is, oh no, I'm in trouble because I am dirty. We see it with Moses. In fact, the author of Hebrews talks about it in chapter 12 about Moses. And now he had an encounter with God and he fell on his face acknowledging his unworthiness. You see it in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10 verses 4 to 8. Daniel gets a vision of the Lord, and he falls on his face as a dead man. We see it with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew around. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. And the temple was filled with smoke. And I said, I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. 
Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's part of what happens when we have an encounter with a holy God is we see our unholiness. We see our unrighteousness. It also happens with Peter in Luke chapter 5. He has a true encounter with Jesus. He sees Jesus for who he is and he says, I'm a sinner and I'm unworthy to even be in your presence. But I want you to see John's encounter this way. It's in Revelation chapter 1. Same John that wrote the gospel, same John that wrote the letter we're looking at today, also wrote Revelation. And he had an encounter with Jesus there, and this is the way it goes. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, and the word of, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in the book what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. John had an encounter with the glorified Jesus Christ. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. When we have an encounter with God, we see our sinfulness. We see our sinfulness, and we turn to Him for cleansing. That's the other part that is common in all these stories. We see our sinfulness, and we turn to Him for cleansing, and our lives are forever changed. Does that mean we're going to live on the rest of our days without any sin? No, but it means the trajectory, the pattern of our lives, the word John uses in 1 John is the practice. The practice of our lives will be different. Our lives will not be marked by sinfulness anymore. Our lives will be marked by righteousness. One preacher I was reading uh, used the illustration of the Nile River to talk about this. What are the two things everyone knows about the Nile River? Number one, it's the longest river in the world, right? And number two, it's the only major river on the planet that flows from south to north. Those are the two trivia facts about the Nile River that everyone knows, right? But if you look closely at a map of the Nile River, there is a portion of the Nile that flows from north to south. The Nile River generally flows from south to north, but there is one part that makes a big bend and it flows for just a little while north to south and then it turns back and starts flowing the same way again. And that is the way it works in our lives as believers, Generally, our life is marked by righteousness if we truly know Jesus. Does that mean there won't be moments of sinfulness? Oh, sure, there will be moments, but that won't be the trademark of our lives. That won't be the pattern of our lives. That won't be the habit of our lives. And if it is, this text teaches us that we probably don't know Jesus. John Phillips says it this way, The occasional stumble of a believer does not constitute him or her an unbeliever, any more than the occasional conformity of an unbeliever to this or that aspect of God's word constitutes him or her a believer. In other words, 
These snapshot moments are not what reveals our true nature, our true character. Rather, it is the pattern, the habit, the trajectory of our lives that reveals our true hearts. So the question that we need to wrestle with today, those of us who claim to know Jesus, is what does the trajectory of our lives say about our hearts? What does the habit of our lives, the pattern of our lives, the practice of our lives, what does it say about our hearts? Is there this inconsistency and this impossibility where we say, oh, I've met Jesus, but the trajectory of our lives looks like more like someone who's never known Jesus? Or do we say, I've met Jesus, and yeah, even though I have moments where I stumble and struggle, the trajectory of my life is Godward. And I'm progressing in sanctification by God's grace and for his glory. I think we need to wrestle with that today. What does the pattern and habit of our lives say about our hearts? But back to talk about Jesus in the next phrase when it says, The Son of God appeared... It's the same word for this purpose. That's the same hinna word we talked about a minute ago. He says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. The second hinna clause in this text. So John gives us two reasons here why Jesus appeared. Two answers to the big Christmas why. Number one, to take away sin. And number two, to destroy the works of the devil. John Piper says this, the people who, are, who will experience the fullest meaning of Christmas are the people who know and feel that there is something in them that needs to be destroyed. The only people who understand Christmas and embrace Christmas for what it really is are people who feel sick and who desperately want their sickness destroyed. Christmas is the celebration of the appearing on earth of God's eternal son. And the reason he appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. So this is the reason for Christmas. God aims to destroy something. So what is it? What is it that God aims to destroy by the appearance of Jesus? The works of the devil, it says in this text, right? The works of the devil. And what are the the works of the devil? Sin. And our sin. And our sinning are the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy. So not only did Jesus appear to take away our sins and to give us a right standing with the Father... In a positional sense, he came to destroy the works of the devil to give us victory over the power of sin in a practical sense as well. So Jesus doesn't just give us right standing with God. He gives us the ability and the prospect of living a righteous life for God here on this earth. So Piper says... What the Son of God came to destroy is not just the guilt of sin, which we talk about in justification, which might enable us to stay like we are and go right on sinning into heaven. But Jesus actually came to destroy actual sinning. The process of sanctification that we talk about. The Son of God came to destroy sinning. So back to our two purposes today. The two purposes of John's writing. Number one, I want to tell you these things about Jesus, so that you might believe in him. And that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So that he would take away your sins. So if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus today. I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Rest all your weight on Jesus. Depend on him entirely. Come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. 
And I know that because of my sin, I deserve death and hell forever and ever. But I believe that you came for sinners like me. And you took my sin. And you paid for my sin. And you took it away when you rose from the dead. And I'm trusting in you. And I want to live for you. I want to invite you to do that today and receive the greatest gift ever. Trust in Christ, believe in him, and repent of your sins and be saved. And also, I've told you these things, those of you who do believe, so that you may know that you have life in him. This is where we need to wrestle with this, is is what I say consistent with how I live? Do I say I'm trusting in Jesus and yet live just like the world? Or do I say I'm trusting in Jesus and there's evidence of it? Are some of you walking around like Paul Washer's imaginary character? Walking around saying, I got hit by a Mack truck this morning, everybody. And no one can tell. I got saved last week, everybody. Nothing changed. Maybe even worse yet, I got saved when I was seven years old, everybody. And your life looks just like your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't care about Jesus. I'm telling you these things. Those of you who believe in Jesus, so that you will know that you have life in his name. So that you'll be encouraged and assured. And maybe what happened today is you say, yeah, I I say that I know Jesus, but there's no real evidence of it in my life. Well, good news. Good news. That's a good day when you realize that. Because from that posture, from that perspective, you can turn and trust in Jesus, really. You can turn and trust in Jesus and repent of your sins and live for him. Starting today. Maybe this Christmas day is a fresh start for you. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we are thankful that Christ appeared to take away sin. And we're thankful that you've told us this story so that we could believe in him and that believing we could have life in his name. God, I pray for men and women and boys and girls who are in this room who don't know that kind of life. They're lost and dead and they're trespasses and sins. And maybe for the first time today they realize that. And that's because you've taught it to them by your grace. And I pray, God, that in that brokenness, in their acknowledgement of their sin and their guilt, and the fact that they deserve wrath from you, I pray that you will turn their eyes to Christ. That they will see him as the one who takes their sin, pays for their sin, and takes it away by his resurrection. God, I pray that you will give men and women and boys and girls faith to believe, to trust and depend on Jesus Christ for salvation. I pray that you give them repentance to turn away from sin and walk toward you in righteousness. I pray that you will, in a way that only you can, give them the gift of salvation today for your own glory. And I pray for those who are in this room who say that they believe. God, I pray that you will help them to know that they believe that you will give them confidence and assurance of the eternal life that you've given to them by grace through faith in Christ. And God, if by your grace you teach them today that this profession of faith that they have made is not a possession of faith, God, that you'll bring them to repentance and faith as well for the very first time, that you'll give them the gift of salvation, that they may live for you the rest of their days and for eternity. God, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the appearing of Jesus and for the purpose of that appearing, that he takes away sin 
and he destroys the works of the devil. And I pray that you will help us to live in the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.